This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. But let me get to the panel because, um, well, last week we had three Mohawk students in because it's the least that I can do here, that we can do here to give some students who are locked out while their teachers and professors and everyone else is on strike something to do. We don't want them sitting at home just, I don't know, playing some sort of, you know, shoot 'em up game and becoming little maniacs. Uh, or not little even. They're not little. They're not elementary school kids. But we want to give them something to do. And so we did that last week. Well, we're extending it this week because the strike is still on. The instructors and the OPSU voted down the possibility to get them back in class. And so I thought, you know what? We're going to bring the Mohawk people back because they know what they're doing. They're smart. And they, they did a great job last week. Now, it's a different group. So the pressure is on that this panel be as good as last week's. Uh, first of all, to my left, to your left on the radio dial, a radio broadcast student, Rasty Belbus. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to have you here. And next to him, a familiar voice, although he's never actually been in this room on this side of the glass. He's usually been kept in his cage on the other side of the window. You hear him every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday on the phones if you call in and occasionally chatting. Ben Strawn. Ben, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Well, I, you're here anyway, but I'm glad to have you. I said, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to actually allow you to participate in a full show for a change as opposed to the odd words interrupted by phone calls. Yeah, it's uh, it's neat. I don't have as much responsibility this time. No, that's all on Will tonight. So uh, if anything goes wrong, blame Will. The weather, blame Will. Technical problems, blame Will. Navy pilots doing rather promiscuous stuff. With blame Will. I don't know if Will has that much say, but... Hey, let's uh, let's start where uh, with the reason why you guys are here. And uh, Ben, we'll we'll go to you first on this one. Um, I don't know if you thought you were going back to school on Monday. You may still be because they're the Liberal government is still trying to push through back to work legislation, and they say they're going to do that this weekend. But who do you blame for what's going on with the strike right now? Who's the bad guy in this? Uh, in my opinion, I'd say it's the colleges because while the colleges are the employers, they have the responsibility of being the employer to make sure that the teachers have the ability to provide the students with the tools they need to get into the workforce. So you're, you're, you're on the side of the teachers. Yes. Your grades just went up by 25% for any teacher who's listening right now. You know that. Well, those are my hopes. (laughs) (laughs) Rassi, what about you? Who's the bad guy in this? Honestly, I, I I don't think I can really have an opinion uh, on that. I, I don't believe I'm well versed in knowing like all the facts of course, you have all the all the other uh, students being super, uh, as you put it, well, like well, okay, pro- so protestory. Who who uh, who would your friends? Who would the people you've been talking to? Who are they angry at? <laughs> uh, depends who you're asking. I think everybody just wants to find someone to be angry at. Uh, so depending on who you're asking, everybody, anybody who's possible, they will be angry at. Are you surprised it's gone on this long, either of you, or is this what you expected? I, I'm I, I I'm a little surprised. I'd say I'm surprised as well. At the same time, I was kind of expecting something more than just one of these two, three-day strikes to happen. Of course, I was waiting for a bit of a long break from school, so I guess it may have been wishful thinking to have a longer strike. Nevertheless, I wasn't expecting a whole month. No, and and you know what? When we're talking about who to blame and who's the bad guy, and, and look, I, I understand uh, that it's difficult to come on here and start slinging arrows if those people that you that may over that may hear what you're saying have some impact on your life. I get that. But I'm looking at this and I got to tell you, I am disgusted with the provincial liberal government that has sat around and done nothing until it became a political problem for them and now has decided, "Oh, let's do something, but we don't want to do anything too much to really upset anybody." And so uh, the the provincial NDP just typical. I mean, I, they don't, I don't even think they think about what they're doing. They just say, oh, it's, you know, union. we got to support the unions. We don't even care what the issue is. And the, the teachers, look, I, I, let me, well, before I go on with the teachers, what is your view on, because one of the big issues in this thing is precarious employment. That's the word we're hearing now. It's the new catchphrase, precarious employment. Not everybody has a full-time job, apparently, with the teachers that is guaranteed to be there forever. Should anybody have that? I mean, is everybody's job really? I mean, in in all honesty, is everybody's job to some degree or another not precarious? I guess you could say so. There are people, I understand there are people who have full-time jobs. I get that. 
But if you do your, if you're going to your work all the time and you misbehave or you stink at your job or you don't do what you're supposed to, or is your work not precarious? I mean, uh, in the instance of, I know in high school I had uh, one teacher who used to used to work there. Uh, it was a full time job for her, but uh, when she does stuff like say racial slurs to students, stuff like that, I it think it becomes precarious. I think it becomes precarious at least at that point. Sure, and if you do a great job at what you're doing. In all likelihood, it's probably not precarious. There are still people, I understand, who may be squeezed out because of this or that or the other. But by and large, if you do a great job at what you do, probably they're going to say, we'd like you to stick around. And for the most part, that's what's been happening with a lot of the teachers at the college. A good teacher is going to be rehired again. Their contract gets renewed. And we've seen that with a lot of the teachers. The thing is, when you have a bad teacher, they go and there's no problem at the end of the contract. But but if a bad teacher is shuffled out, is that a bad thing? I wouldn't say so. See, I, I'm thinking, Rassi, if, if there's a bad teacher who doesn't get their contract renewed, to me, good. Let's open that door and let someone come in and try. And if they're a better teacher, let's have them stay there. See, I think in this instance, it's who gets to decide like uh, where you draw the line there. Uh, I mentioned the, the race thing. Uh, but if when it really when it really comes down to it, what where do you draw the line in what constitutes as a bad teacher? Do you actually have to slip up or? But is, is that there... not part of the problem then with this whole thing with with whether we're talking about elementary teachers right up to university professors? Is that not part of the problem that there is no criteria, there is no scale on which we're judging these teachers to determine if they are good or not good? In most other professions, like. Let me use this example right here because I was thinking about this today when someone talked about precarious employment. Bill Kelly, Scott Thompson, who are on here during the morning and the afternoon, they have full-time jobs, but if their ratings aren't good, if they're not doing a good job, they don't get kept. Their work is full-time, but it's still precarious. And we can judge their work based on those ratings, based on feedback, based on audience involvement. How do you judge how do you judge if a teacher is doing a good job or not, or a professor or an instructor? Well, you did just say it yourself, feedback. They have uh, students that give surveys, or sorry, the colleges give surveys to the students of, tell us what you think of your professors. Here's an anonymous survey. There's no worry. Your name's not attached. Tell us what you thought of the class. And in my, in my experience, I've answered those honestly. And if a teacher does really well in something, I say they did really well. At the same time, if they were really bad at another thing, I should be saying that because the feedback is what tells you, is this teacher good and should be kept, or is this teacher not good and should be let go and brought in, or have someone better brought in and see how that's going to go. Yeah. The, the irony of this whole thing to me is that the people who are now, that the, the, the union is arguing to get this precarious employment situation gone. They want to solidify their roles. And who are the ultimately the people who are deciding on whether you can do this? The government. So you've got politicians who are the absolute perfect example of precarious employment. If they don't do their job, they get voted out. It's it's very cut and dried how their system works. And you're saying, well, I want to have a system now where I, I eliminate all the risk that I could possibly lose my job. I want to know that from now until time eternal, I am locked in with a job. And I don't think that exists. I think that's a utopian vision of something that does not exist anywhere. Tell me, what job? Rasty, Ben, what job guarantees you employment forever? <laughs> I, I, don't, I can't really think of any right now. <laughs> Maybe a tenured university professor, unless you sacrifice a small child in the quad or something. I mean, I don't know what you would have to do. And even then, you probably keep your tenureship. I can't think of a job that has guaranteed employment forever, no matter what your performance is like, except maybe, as I say, in the education system. Yeah, I mean, that that's what I was going to say was a tenured professor. Once, once you have that, you know you're guaranteed. And in many cases, that's not a very good thing to know because I can do anything. I can do literally anything and keep my job. That's kind of a dangerous thing to have. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for people having some protections if they're doing their job right, if they're doing their job well, and you should not just be able to get rid of them because 
perhaps they hold a different point of view. Perhaps, they, you know, we've, we talked about this on the show earlier this week mm. with the uh, teaching assistant from <clears throat> University of uh, Wilfrid Laurier University who was in trouble for showing a video that was politically incorrect, partially. See, I don't look at that. I, I look at that and I go, wait a second. So now that was university, but university professors are telling their subservience, your position is not protected. It's precarious. I, I, this whole thing to me is a, is a request and a demand for something that doesn't exist anywhere in our society. There are for sure cases where it's less precarious, but to be guaranteed a position to me is asking a step too far. It's a step too far, especially when we're talking about the kind of money we're talking about here. These are not, I mean, I don't know what it, would, do you guys have any idea what a college professor or college instructor makes a I know full time? What, I know what they're asking for. Yeah, well, mm, yeah. And no it, idea about when that. When you yeah. start going in, well, if I remember correctly, the minimum was something about $80,000. Maximum full was time. like, yeah, full time. Maximum was going to be like 115000 a year. And if you're going to be guaranteed that, that is, like I said, it's a dangerous thing to have. I would be, you know, now we're well down the road of negotiations, probably too late to start throwing in new things like this. But, um, I, well, first of all, I've made it clear already. I don't believe that, I don't believe that we should even be having this. I think that the government should, I think that the government should be putting all education workers as essential workers. They should be designating them as that immediately, which eliminates strikes for students of all ages permanently, immediately. That would be what I would do. I'm not in government. But the fact is, if we're going to start renegotiating this, fine, we will give you more protection, provided we also can do more analysis of your job performance. And you are protected for your job, provided your performance remains high. But if your performance goes down, we've got thousands of young teachers waiting in the wings if you don't want to work hard, if you don't want to do extracurriculars, if you don't want to do this and that and the other, thank you very much. We've got someone to fill your role. I don't think, Rasty, that there is a professor, teacher, instructor out there who is going to agree to say, oh, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll sign on to that if my performance is being evaluated, my employment is being de determined based on that. Nobody's going to sign to that. No, I I wouldn't think so. as. <laughs> But that's what we are, is that, but again, that's what we have in most jobs in our society. It's based on your performance. I can think of, we could sit here right now for the next 10 minutes and I bet you we could think of 50 positions, 50 jobs, 50 careers where your employment is based on your performance. I mean, even a waiter, right? You might get minimum wage for being a waiter, but you're not going to make any money if you're terrible at it. You make your money off tips. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't even think waiters make minimum wage no. at this point. So so can you live on, you might be able to show up at work and put on the uniform, but can you make a living, even if you could make a living, can you make a living as a waiter if you're terrible? I don't think so. I don't think you can. And that's the thing is when you start having those questions, like, I mean, it's already been decided, but minimum wage, it's should it's called minimum because it is the minimum amount you need to live. Well, it's even less than that. I, and, and I and I acknowledge that. It, it is the the thing about minimum wage though, and we're into a whole different area here. I don't think that minimum wage was ever designed to be there's a there's a confusion now that people are talking about minimum wage and living wage. I don't think minimum wage was ever designed to be something you would live on. You would get that job to move up to try and move forward and get something else, not to stay at that place. But okay. So let me move on. Cause we've got a couple more minutes and I want to just on this topic, let's say that it does that the back to work legislation gets rammed through this weekend and you guys are back to school Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever you've lost five and a half, maybe six weeks of your semester. <clears throat> and they say, we're going to extend the semester into early January. So we're going to take those six weeks and we're going to cram them into an extra two weeks. Rassi, what does that say to you that you've paid for a full semester and now they're telling you we can do six weeks worth of work in two weeks? Having 
what what was it eight or nine classes this semester already stressing having to do like what was it like seven assignments a week and then having that crammed into like a two extra weeks two or three whatever I, yeah something less <laughs> i would much rather have any other alternative to that I, including including the opportunity to say we are just gassing this semester and we're going to start over in january honestly yeah i i would rather do the, the like the amount of stress that students have, college, university, sometimes high school, you never know. Some some people might find high school a little bit difficult there. Uh, the oh, amount of stress. Up. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of stress that students have to go through and then for them to just say, oh, yeah, by the way, we're just going to triple that stress for you. Does, uh, doesn't matter. Uh, we'll put that on top of part-time jobs, some people working two jobs, still going to college. Just trying to kind of scrape uh, by your yeah. tuition. Some people are living alone. Some some are single mothers, and they're still going to college, still trying to work a job there. I I don't believe that's uh, that's really fair. So so my question. It's interesting how you answered that because my question was: Do you think you were getting ripped off if basically they can cram six weeks into two weeks? If that's the case, you're saying, well, then why are they not giving us more to do to fill that time? It sounds like they're padding it out. What you're saying is, if they make us do this. Our program is already really jam-packed anyway. This is going to make it impossible to do. You're not looking at it like, I'm going to be ripped off. You're looking at it like, how in the world am I going to be able to do all this work? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what was it? There was, um, I, I don't remember. There was there was a post saying something. I, I lost my chain of thought no there. No problem. And I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? I really do think that if you were able to take six weeks of work and cram it into two weeks of work, why are you having programs that are so long as they are? And that's that was my question. And that's that to me is if if you could do that, if you really could do that, well, then why are you not giving me more information and more teaching in that time if we're just padding it out? Now, what Rassi is saying is, no, we're not really padding out. This is going to make it impossible for people to do their work properly and to learn everything properly. There's a reason why the credits are by the hour and the amount of time that you spend in class by the hour. Having to just take that all away is just absolutely impossible for some people. And so what becomes of it then? Like what happens then if you, if what, as you describe, Rassi, that we now have all this work to do in this limited time, Presumably that means some people who are not the exceptional time managers, not everybody is a great time manager, some people's marks are going to go <laughs> Does that not make this strike directly impact their future? Because when they then go to put their report cards out or go to apply for a job, this would then directly impact their ability to get work. Uh, definitely. I, I remember the post that I was talking about where they were talking about a strike has never affected a student's ability to complete the year or their semester. This very well could be that, that one in a million chance. And that was an email we were told directly from the college, was that no one has ever had their academic standing affected by this. But now that you've gone almost five or six weeks, I don't think you can say that that's going to be the case anymore. Well, I, I, I mean, to me, I know that when I was in high school, because I got rid of math as fast as I could when I got out of high school. <laughs> I, I cannot do math. But I know that when I was doing math, as an example, in high school, I always thought it was uh, unfortunate because whatever I had managed to cram into my head and actually learn by the time final exams rolled around in May or June, when I showed up in September again and I'd had a whole summer of not doing that, I needed weeks to catch up and remember what it was that I was doing. Now, that was a whole summer, but nonetheless, if you've been away for six weeks and you've been doing some intense stuff with, in your case, both of you broadcasting, not only do you now have to move forward and cram everything in, there's going to be some recap time to go over again what we were doing. What, where did we last leave off? You know, it's like the, the beginning of any serial, any series TV show. What do they always show at the beginning? What happened before? If you ever watched Lost or if you ever watched some drama, it's always... You know, here's what happened before. Better, you know, uh, Stranger Things. I just finished watching it. What? Here's what happened previously. You need that in order to pick up. You can't just drop everyone right in there. So, I, I, I just don't know how this is going to be done. I really don't know how it's going to be done in a fair way. <coughs> Last thing: Would either of you, 
sign up to the uh, class action lawsuit to try and get some form of a refund, even if even if you get to theoretically get all your schooling in, would either of you sign up for that? I would, yeah. Because, I mean, you've taken away so much of my schooling that I've paid you for. I think I'm entitled to get my money back because you didn't give the service. Usually, uh, I, I haven't really thought <clears throat> as far ahead as, uh, oh, what's going to happen when the strike actually ends? Um, but thinking about it now, I'd most definitely do that. Interesting discussion. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I read this story today. Now, what really got my attention with this one is the man at the center of this actually looks like the crazed James Bond villain scientist. He looks like he's, he's, he's got a very small face with a very large shaved bald head. So he looks like almost something from the cartoons. And he's got the evil round John Lennon glasses. Like the, He looks perfect for this story. I'm, I'm saying that as the introduction because this guy looks like Hollywood has created him to be the fulcrum of this story. Uh, he is a surgeon. His name is Sergio Canavero. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but I like saying it. Sergio Canavero. Uh, he is living in China these days, I guess because it's the only place that is allowing him to do the surgery that he is experimenting on. And he says that today, the world's first human head transplant has taken place. Now, it was from a cadaver to a cadaver, but they wanted to see if you, in fact, could attach a head to a body. And he says, yes. It was successful, as successful as sewing together parts from two dead bodies can be. I mean, how bad could it go, really? <laughs> What's the worst thing that happens if this surgery doesn't pan out well? It comes back to life. Yeah, I suppose. that's The worst case scenario would be that it actually came back to life. Um, did not do that, but it's... Uh, Damn. It's, <laughs> yeah, it, he's apparently done a head-to-head, head-to-body transplant... First of all, I, I, I kind of want to, while I'm not a ghoulish guy and I don't really want to watch the nuts and bolts of that kind of thing, I kind of want to see part of it just to know that he's not just pulling our leg. My question is, does this count as two head transplants? Because if it's cadaver to cadaver... Well, there was one head, I hope. <laughs> Unless he's got a really weird sense of humor. <laughs> he's just trying to make the first human hydra. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so my... Okay, so his but his line here, and he's asked a whole bunch of questions about this, and they're trying now to, he wants to move on so that eventually you will have live patients. And his quote is, the final goal is immortality. That what would happen is eventually we'll just keep, well, first of all, this doesn't really make sense. I was going to say we just keep adding heads to bodies to keep you alive, <laughs> but ultimately someone has to be dying to come up with the heads or the body. Exactly. And right? the big question Unless we're just going to have it like a Mr. Potato Head where you can move parts around all the time. <laughs> I don't like this body. Can we can we just like switch arms, switch you heads? Know, that would actually be a lot less work than trying to lose weight and get in shape. <laughs> I need to get Arnold Schwarzenegger's email in this yeah. case. <laughs> or at least I just his, want a his good looking, I want a great body. Can you just put my head on a great body? I mean, Arnold right now. Yeah, I, I, I was I was going to say I, I want the older version of Maybe or, 20 years ago. Just yeah, not 20 right years now. ago, not the now. Yeah. I, <laughs> But I'm, I'm looking at this, I'm thinking about this. This, to me, ties in with the concept of cryogenically freezing someone and other things. Would you guys have any, even if this was doable, and I still don't believe this will ever happen because even if you could reattach a head, do you want to have your head attached to a body knowing that your spinal cord has been severed so that you're going to be, if if you could even, if they could reanimate you, that you're going to come back as a quadriplegic. I'm not sure that's a better quality of life. But if they could do this somehow, if the magic existed, would you ever want to have this happen to you? Would you ever want to be brought back with your head attached to a different body? I'm seriously, like, scared of most things. I'm going to have to go with a no. I remember seeing... um 
there was like an old YTV show. It was like Mystery Hunters or something. It was always on like at like nine o'clock or something. And they were kind of like entertaining this idea. They kind of were like, oh yeah, this totally happened. This guy cut off his head, cryogenically froze it, and now he's in this new body. But I kind of knew that it was kind of made up. I it always spooked me. See, let me read you a little more from this story about this. Uh, they've done experiments prior to this cadaver to cadaver move. They've done some experiments on rats. The team severed the spinal cords of rats, then treated them with polyethylene glycol to seal and repair damaged spinal cord nerve cells. Within a month, the rats had recovered some movement, and two returned to a state that was, quote, basically normal. He says there's already been interest from ultra-rich patients seeking to extend their lives by grafting aging heads onto fresh young bodies. That, see, just calling them fresh young bodies <laughs> throws me off right off the bat. The thing that throws me off is the basically normal air quotations. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather be normal or, I like, personally, I would rather become, like, bionic before I take other human parts. I will take machine first. You know, another story has just popped into my head that I have seen some of in the last couple of weeks. And... It's not a story that particularly I want to talk about on the show because it's kind of, to me, it's kind of gross and kind of, uh, but there is a, there is an industry, there is a market developing for fake sex dolls, basically, you know, lifelike. There, there, there are people over in Europe who are making life-size, lifelike dolls of women. I think it's, you know, there's so many problems with this, but that are basically your sex toy and I'm looking going, okay, wait, wait a second. If I've got my actual head, back to this story, and you can make a body now that is close you? enough to human to be close, <laughs> why not just strap your head onto that? Again, as you said, Ben, I, the, like this whole thing. I even, I almost feel like it's ridiculous to be talking about this topic, but for the fact that there is someone out there doing actual experiments on this, right? If this was just a guy who said, I think down the road we can attach a body to a head and nothing had been done, you would say, what a ridiculous thing. But there's someone who is actually trying to do this and apparently has people willing to spend money to make this happen. And if it works... If it works, if he could ever produce a person to come walking out of the, behind the curtain with a new head, just a big scar right around their neck, presumably the same race and the same gender, I suppose. Now it gets really interesting if you start (laughs) mixing, uh, but presumably you have someone who comes walking out and says, yeah, this was not my original head or this was not my original body. People will be looking into this. I, I just cannot fathom how you would want to do this. At what point do you start going, this is a designer body and this is taken with the finest parts from Belgium and this has <laughs> some <Yeah>. some Polish <laughs> and these are the Australian eyes from, you know, Western Australia. You're like, not wrong. You're not wrong at all because if this was to work, and again, I think we're talking about dreamland here. I just don't believe that this is going to happen. I think there's just so many things that make this crazy. But yeah, you're not wrong. What's to stop you, even if you're not going to switch heads? Could the same technology, could you say, you know what? The head thing is a lot to ask. Doing the whole head is a tough one. But hey, could there be someone who says, I'm going to sort of take the general concept of this technology and transplant eyeballs to someone who is blind? Now that is actually something you go, hey, how about using your medical and scientific skills to something like that instead of making it some sort of Star Trek weird thing? Let's put it towards something actually useful. That I would look at and go, if I was totally blind, I'd be open to someone testing that on me. The other question is, well, your head is still going to keep aging. Your brain is still going to deteriorate over time. After a while, you're just going to have mush on shoulders. Applesauce on a firm body. <laughs> That's. Um, I'm just. Uh, I'm just wondering how kinda, these people are gonna go through and see the results for their ancestry stuff. <laughs> how that's gonna work out if they're taking like Polish eyeballs and just like you know Australian fingers. I'm looking at this now. You just created another interesting thought in my head. If the idea of the old head on the fresh young body, as they describe, which again makes it sound like it's a steak, you got to say um, with the fancy accent, yeah, with a fresh young, I can't do it. I can't. There's no way to say that that makes it not sound gross. But 
That's kind of the opposite of almost every woman in Hollywood, isn't it? Who gets their face made younger and younger and younger while their body continues on. As I mean, they have a lift here and a tuck there, but it's kind of just the opposite of what they're doing. I don't know. I, I, I Combine them. Combine them and you will become the ultimate human being. <laughs> well, the, ult- yeah, the ultimate young human being with a new head. I, here's the other one. There have been face transplants. Legitimately, there have been people who have, because of a horrible injury of a burn or something else, they have had the, you can go online and see these things. They have not happened a lot, but there are cases where they have removed the face literally from a cadaver and transplanted the whole face and they've rebuilt fat and built up the face and everything onto someone else. What would happen if you woke up out of surgery having seen yourself in the mirror all your life? And you go and you look in the mirror and suddenly, like, I'm Ben. That would be the trippiest moment Would it not be? Ever. Would it not be? You've been looking at yourself for, like, what, 20, 21 years, and suddenly just one day you were just not yourself anymore. I think it would be a little little mentally frightening there. It would be be a completely disconcerting thing to see a complete – because your face – I know it's your – what's inside that counts, all right? (laughs) But your face is you. You're, really, if to, to society, your face is you, and to suddenly be a different you would be, I mean, uh, unless you're in the witness protection program, this is not something that, and worse, I want to make sure that if I'm getting a new face that I get to choose, I want a good one. <laughs> Seriously, like, could you imagine if after all this, you wake up and you find out that, well, the only available face that we had was like really homely. Like, okay, I'll wait for an extra week or two. Wait for a good-looking person to become available. Step right up to the face lottery. It's not, there's not, this whole thing, and yes, we are making light of this, and I know in some cases, for some people, this is very serious. The whole thing to me is just creepy beyond words. The cryogenics, the head transplants, the face transplants, it's all just totally creepy. And if we're mocking it a little bit, just because I don't know how to talk about this without cringing anyway. Again, I, I, I would love it if Dr. Evil here with the giant bald <laughs> head and the little face. Wait till you see his picture. Did you ever see that old Saturday Night Live skit with the, um, the, uh, the two, uh, who were the, the, um, the twins, the, the, the two super, uh, Ace and what was it? Base? <laughs> Hans and Franz? No, 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 no. No? It was the animated one, and they were uh, they were too, uh, they were a little close. Uh, Ace and whatever, George or whatever, but this guy looks like the evil guy in that. But take the knowledge you have, take the stuff you're working on, and put it towards something like, as I say, transplanting eyeballs or cornea. Well, they already do corneas, or other stuff that is actually useful for people without being just weird and creepy. I think there was a little panel uh, in like a like a Spider-Man comic or something. It's like you have you can rewrite DNA. You can cure people from having cancer. He's like, I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, that's good use of time. Good use of your science. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. This I think is a really interesting issue that is going on right now because we know that we are in the middle right now of a unique, troubling, baffling, shocking scandal that we know is swallowing people up left, right, and center. Every day we hear new cases of people who have either sexually harassed someone or sexually assaulted someone or sexually been inappropriate with someone. Every single day we're hearing new cases. Yesterday it was Sylvester Stallone and Al Franken. I haven't even checked who it is today. I guarantee you there are two or three today that have been named by somebody. Now, Sarah Silverman is a comedian. She, many people would know who Sarah Silverman is. Uh, You can love her. You can not love her work. But nonetheless, she is well known as a comedian. She's done all kinds of things. Anyway, she is good friends with Louis C.K., who is one of the guys who was really in the middle of one of the worst cases of this. Without going into details about Louis C.K., let's just say that his behavior was strange in the most ugly, inappropriate kind of way. I don't know anyone 
who would think that what he did was somehow normal or acceptable. Nonetheless, he apparently did. Long introduction. Sarah Silverman was talking in the New York Times today, and her question that she asked is, is it okay to love someone, to be friends with someone, to not hate someone who has done some horrible things? Is it okay if you is it okay for her to be friends with Louis CK even after we know what he did? Is it okay for someone to be friends with Weinstein after someone knows what he did? How do you how do you do that? How, like or in your guys mind is it once you're convicted in the court of public opinion on this you are a pariah and you are never to be heard from again? How do you balance this? It's a tough one. I'm not going to lie. It's a tough one. This is really tough. (laughs) I don't really know. Because, well, you have both aspects of I still know you as a person. Right. You can have made a mistake. You know, people change over time. It's a fact of life. And even if it's not a mistake, because I don't think that people are going to call what they're doing a mistake. Of course. Sometimes. It's bad behavior. Yes. In many cases, it was done with clear intent. It was a bad choice as opposed to a mistake. You made bad choices. Exactly. Um, You make bad choices and then you can repent whether or not you do in the public eye. And if it's done, if if your apology is accepted, in this case, it's very, very hard, maybe even impossible to be accepted as or have your apology accepted. Then, yeah, I think that it's okay to be friends because if you realize you've done something wrong, and you genuinely believe that it was wrong now, I have no problem with you being friends with someone. If person X, well, I was going to at one point say Ben as an example, but we know Ben. No, I, I mean, Coolest. but no, I don't want to, I don't, I wasn't meaning to do it being yeah, yeah. S- silly, but I also don't want to have anyone tune in and suddenly go, oh, look, what did Ben do? Uh, <laughs> not that, but if person X, who was a good friend of yours, got caught up in something like this, would you remain friends with him? I I don't know. I I want to say yes because, like you said, like you know the person. People people make bad decisions all the time. I I'm really conflicted. I haven't had to deal with this. I haven't had to I like ask myself this question or have to deal with that before. It's that's really difficult. See, the even cha- more challenging thing, and we'll get back to that part in a second. We'll get back to the personal thing in a second. The even more difficult thing, I think, for a lot of these people who are now in Hollywood or who are friends with these people whose names keep coming out is whether or not you personally can be friends with that person still. Can you publicly align yourself as a friend of that person? Or is that a career killer? If I come out publicly and say, you know what? I don't agree with what Louis C.K. did, but we're still good friends and we're still going to hang out. Does that affect your career or is that okay? Anything that you do will affect your career if you're in that line of work. If you breathe wrong, people will uh, condemn you for that. It's it's, uh, it's real iffy there. It's a big challenge because what the public believes and what is true can very often be very different. And we don't have an overly forgiving social media society. No. No, We, no. We are the judge and jury in a flash. And the executioner in a lot of them. Uh, absolutely. I mean, yesterday was a was an interesting example of this because Al Franken, who is a, everyone knows, he's a U.S. senator now. He used to be on Saturday Night Live. He was a comedian. Um, someone said there was a, a woman who said that he was inappropriate with her and then a picture came out showing him groping her breasts. It looked, it looked like that anyway. That's what the picture showed. From... 10 in the morning, let's say, when that story first came out, by the end of the day, Al Franken was a pariah who was being told, you must resign from the Senate. I mean, that is, think of how fast that is to wake up in the morning. Now, I'm not defending Al Franken. His behavior does, you know, he can defend his own behavior if he wants. But to wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to work today like every other day, and six hours later, your life is, we move at a fast pace now. We move at a really, for better or for worse, because sometimes I worry about this. Sometimes I worry we're going to catch someone up in this thing that has been falsely accused. So far, who knows? But uh, so if that's, if we have decided now that, you know what, social media, whoever else has determined that you are guilty, I don't know if people are going to want to attach themselves, align themselves with those people. 
most likely they're not going to align themselves with them because, like I said, the public dictates a lot of who you are when it comes to becoming a public figure. I mean, it's called a public figure for a reason. You're recognized by the public and you're a representative, in some cases, of the public. When you start to have altercations amongst each other, and in some cases you have people who are friends, that makes everything that everything you become is everything you do. Well, I think is the best way I can and, word and it. And the public part is, yes, you know what? You are very public, but you've also in almost every case been exceedingly well compensated. It's a trade-off. You have allowed yourself to become a public figure. And as a result, you have probably made an awful lot of money. More money than the average person who is private is ever going to make. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Frank writes in and says there's still room for forgiveness in this world, provided that the convicted are truly sorry and, most importantly, serve some type of noticeable penance to prove it. I, I agree with that. I agree wholeheartedly with that. But what's interesting as well is we, especially with this just swirling cloud right now that everyone's caught up in, there doesn't seem to be, for most people, any kind of forgiveness room. And and to be fair, it's perhaps way too soon that no one has shown their con- contrition or shown, I mean, we're only weeks into this thing. So, you know, if I'm, if, if Al Franken were to say, I'm really sorry, is he supposed to be forgiven by everybody tomorrow because, you know, a day later and we go get on with what you were, it's very challenging. And yet, have we not had people do horrible, horrible, horrible things, but because they're famous or infamous, we are willing to overlook those things? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the polarity is when you're popular and you're famous, people can love you instantly, people can hate you instantly, and those can change instantly as well. You will always have some diehard fans if you're in the public, no matter what kind of scummy things that you do or that you don't do. There are, are, there are always going to be people who, are, who will jump on and off the bandwagon. You are always going to have those diehard fans that no matter what they do, they will always like stick by that figure. Well, I can tell you that uh, a person that I have as a Facebook friend, as a, a person I've connected with on Facebook, posted a picture last week, maybe the week before, of him in Las Vegas posing with O.J. Simpson. Bumped into him on the street, and he and his buddy and O.J. right between them, big smiles on everybody's face. And I'm looking at this going, see, I have a harder time with that, not because I... I dismiss or I'm belittling this sexual assault scandal that's going on. It's this idea that uh, OJ is kind of just a fun guy and he, you know, on and on. He 99.999999% slaughtered two people. I'm sorry, I can't see a guy in the middle of the strip in Vegas and go, hey, OJ, come on over, let's take a picture, man. I can't do that. I can't, I can't, and maybe. I should be now. Maybe I should be more forgiving of the guy. I, I can't, I can forgive him, I suppose, if he were ever to say that I've done something wrong. But I just don't see, I can't do that. For that, uh, for the context with uh, the picture that your friend had, did they like have like a whole paragraph of why they love OJ or, because I'm thinking on the internet at least there is a lot of, you know, doing it in jest. I know there was a lot of, uh, pictures of like people taking uh, selfies with like Hillary Clinton and saying like can't wait till we go to jail on like on like Snapchat or something. No, so, this this was this appeared to be you know, hey, look how excited we are to uh to run into OJ. And could, you know, and and if I had if I had a friend, if I was really close friends with one of the people whose name had come up in this recent sexual assault thing. Let, let me use a different example. Because we've had like, again, some people seem to be these lovable folks that we're able to overlook some of their things, like OJ. But if you were really close friends with Gian Gomeshi, would it be easy publicly to align yourself with him now? Because I look at a guy like that and I think, I don't see the public forgiveness. I don't see the public willingness to overlook his actions still. I don't know how many people are going to say, yeah, I'll 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 
criticize your behaviors, but I'll stand with you. I don't see people doing that. I don't see them. It's either you're either standing with the person and being criticized or you're leaving them totally alone. And I, I, I don't know if that's the right thing or not. I find it interesting that you bring up John Gomeshi because I find that a lot of society nowadays remembers things very poorly. People yeah. forget things very fast and I don't want to get into this too much, but that's part of the thing that gets Trump going so well is because he does something stupid now and he does st- something stupid the next day and what he did before, everyone forgets about it. Yeah, I look, I am, I am entirely... Uh, absolutely, I am entirely forgiving of someone, and I want to be able to offer that kind of forgiveness to somebody. But it is these. This situation right now is so difficult to know how do you how do you handle this? And you know, I, I don't I don't know that it's healthy for someone to just have everybody abandon them. You get caught up in this thing because what happens again? We're talking about one particular case, but what happens to the first person who gets wrongly accused in this thing? Like this is a, this is now a sweeping tidal wave that's going over. Somebody at some point is going to be wrongly accused because for some particular reason, two things are going to happen. First, that person's life is going to be ruined. Second of all, when it's, if it's disproven, the unfortunate part is, that's going to raise doubts and questions about all the legitimate ones that have been thrown out there, right? It's going to be a huge problem, but what happens to that person when when they when everybody runs from them? I it's very very difficult. It really is. I'm not an easy one to, to sell Sarah Silverman's question is it can you love someone who did bad things or how do you deal with that? Not an easy question right now. And if you were friends with Louis CK or with Weinstein or with any of these people um that is a tough, tough position to try and say that I'm going to publicly stand beside you while hails of arrows are flying legitimately and fairly and earned, but flying at you. That's a tough position. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There were 99 people. I believe it was today. It was either today or yesterday, but there were 99 people that were given... The Order of Canada today. You guys both, you guys know what the Order of Canada is. It's Canada's highest. There's three levels, but it's our highest civilian award that we give for contributions to our country. Uh, included today were people like Alex Trebek from Jeopardy. Uh, fair enough. The surviving members of Tragically Hip. Fair enough. But there were 99 people. And I'm wondering, you know, the the in the States they have different awards, and I'm not comparing us necessarily to the States, but I look at these, there's 99 people, and we do this every year, I think it may even be twice a year, is this, does this not, does this sheer volume not somehow water down the award a little bit? Should we not be a little more, I don't know, particular about who we're giving these top honors to? I would think so. I mean, 99 people being given the best award you can, um, that doesn't really make it feel like it's the best. Maybe we just have a lot of people here that are the best. We are Canadian. Well, we, yeah, we do like to give everyone the participant medal, and these are not the <laughs> uh, these are not just the participant ribbon people. But Mark Messier was on there. Uh, Mike Myers, Catherine O'Hara uh, were on there. So th- I mean, there are people who are name recognizable name people. The difficulty with this is it doesn't diminish what the other people have done when they're not as famous, but I think you could go down the list of these 99, and I'm not going to do it because I don't want to point people out just to humiliate them or to embarrass them. That's not what it's about. Most of these people, you and I and everyone listening, would have never heard of before. We would have never heard of these people before. And sometimes that's because the stuff they've done has been in science or in something else. And I mean, how many of us really know who's working in a lab somewhere in some university? But it just seems to me that when you give out 99 of these things once or twice a year, that doesn't seem to be all that special anymore. Especially when you give it to something like all the surviving members of the Tragically Hip. If when you, the one guy who should have got it, it exactly, and I think he did. To be honest, I, I think believe he did. he did. 
Okay, just the wording of that kind of threw me off. I thought it was like literally everybody except Gord uh, Downey got it. That seemed a little... Well, no, and I think, as I say, I believe that he had it previously. I think when his, uh, when they had the diagnosis of cancer, I think they rushed him through and got it. So, okay, first of all, kudos to the Order of Canada people, if that's the case, for getting it to the person before they pass away. Same when Terry Fox was very ill, they did this. Because you take somewhere else like the Hockey Hall of Fame that has people like Pat Quinn or Pat Burns who are dying and they know they're going in and they don't decide to induct them before they die and then they induct them right after they die and it's like, well, what was the point of that other than being mean? So good for them. But I I, I simply look at this and I think we maybe we should still be honoring all these people for the great work they do, but then let's have a separate standalone thing for the really impactful Canadians who really set our country did something spectacular for the country or really brought glory to the country. And I don't know, does Mike Myers fall into that category? Does a guy who played Austin Powers or the love guru? Or Shrek. Or Shrek. I mean, but but you know what? Go down in the States and everybody knows who Mike Myers is. So he has brought acclaim and he has brought attention. Alex Trebek. Everybody knows who Alex Trebek is. It seems to me that people like that who are the absolute top of the top should be in a different category. Well, didn't you say there was like the three tiers of it? There are, but the difficulty is even within the three tiers of them, there's the member of the Order of Canada, there's the officers of the Order of Canada, there's the companions of the Order of Canada. Which one is the highest one? Officers? Companion? Okay, good guess. Companion. All right. Did you know that? Absolutely not. I just, okay, I so just went. See? You said him, and it seemed like you did him in order. Like member, yes. members, kind of like you know. That's what there. I was thinking. Yeah, was you're like, a member. He, he's trying to mess me up. <laughs> but again, so yes. Yeah, so even though they have different levels, if you were to bump into someone and they said, "I'm in the Order of Canada," he said, "Oh, what level?" And they said, "Officer," would you go, "Oh, you're the middle one," or would you go? What does that mean? Help me out with that. What level is that one again? Maybe the whole thing is we got to change the name at least. That's why I feel like having a tiered system may not be the best, but if you had kind of like the People's Order of Canada or something like that, you had this like, I don't know, the Knowledge of Canada or something like that in which it's it's generalized, but it's specific at the same time. So you have... You know, you've helped the people of Canada. You've helped extend the knowledge of Canada. Categories, then. It, it, yeah, exactly. The Order of Canada, the Super Order of Canada, <laughs> and the Super Duper Order of Canada. <laughs> the other thing is, going back to what you said about how if you go down to the States, everyone knows who Mike Myers is. Just because you know who the person is, I don't know what Mike Myers has done to deserve the Order of Canada other than I know who he is, I know he's an actor. He's a famous Canadian actor. I guess we'll just add him. No, to the and list. that's that's a fair point for sure. That is a fair point. Just because you're famous doesn't necessarily make you great. Now, I think you know Mike Myers has done stuff that has been very, very successful. Is it highbrow? No, it's not really highbrow. He hasn't worked in the ballet, but I, I don't know that we. Again, you fall into these things about okay, who's who's deciding? Like, is it? Only the the culture, the most cultured who get to say, to me, you look at this and you say, I think that I hate to do this. I really hate to give them more credit than us. But when you look at the presidential medal, for example, that the president can give out and they usually give it to five or six or 10 people a year. And in the States, maybe it's a little more than that, but they're. The really most famous people, the people who have just done exceptional things. The you you even have with with uh, with the arts in the states. They have the um, the Kennedy Center honors, which is for the elite of the elite in the artistic world. I'm just looking at this list, and I, it's not that these people have not done exceptional things. I could not tell you any of them of what they are. And if we're giving our highest order, to, highest award to someone, should we not by name, by some way, be able to recognize these people? And that's the thing. is like someone like David Suzuki, you know the name. Sure. You know what he's done. Yep. He's not a famous actor, though. He's not someone who, I know him because I like his movies. No, but he's done something that most people are familiar with. Now, 
that to me it it shouldn't mean that we don't honor other people. Again, I, your idea of do we categorize this by arts, sports, intellect? Even if you did that, I think it lends some clarity. Maybe that's the word to what this is. Now, of course, the challenge is once you start to categorize them, well, then it's no longer you're the best. You are the best of this. What if I want to be the best overall? Then you. Well, have... I don't know if it's a competition per se. No. Although for some people it might be. No, you know, for some people it might be. They want to move up. They, there are people who move up from different orders. You get an, you get put into the the uh, the member. And then you continue on to do better things, and they give you, oh, we'll bump you up a notch. Can you get demoted? I don't know. That would be interesting. <laughs> just have it. Just have the rating system be like, just karate. Oh, yeah, I'm a black belt now. I'm a black belt of the Order of Canada. That, would be, <laughs> that a, sounds sick. Yeah, Terry Fox was a fourth Dan black belt in the Order of Canada. See, now you're saying something that people could understand, probably. Uh, I, I, and here's the next part that becomes so difficult. I would guess, I would hope that Terry Fox, when he was given this, was made a companion of the Order of Canada. I would hope that he got put into the very highest level. I'm picking Terry Fox out of anybody. But I have absolutely no idea. So is Terry Fox one of the super duper Order of Canada or is he just one of the Order of Canada? And again... um, well, one of the people who got made to the companion of the Order of Canada today, all right, which I just noticed this, which again makes this weird to me. There are three people that were made a companion, so the highest level. One of them was His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales. I'd hope he is, like, I would hope that you are one of the best. Wait a second, but you're, you're one the, of the leaders. But if you're the Prince of Wales, why do you need an Order of Canada? What have you okay, done yeah. to be doing stuff for Canada? I'm not dumping on the Prince of Wales. But, but why yeah. are you in the Order of Canada? Okay, I'll give you that. Yeah, I mean, Prince of Wales, Order of Canada. You're I'm, already the Prince of Wales. What more do you want? <laughs> I'm no expert, but not the same country. I'm still part of the royal bloodline. I am the best in all the commonwealths. You want to know something? This is actually, I never knew this. You know how people have things after the name? There's like a, a person here who's a QC. He was a lawyer. Queen's Council was something that lawyers could get. Here's His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, KG, KT, GCB, OM, AK, QSO, CC, CD, PC, ADC. Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, is that like an ingredient list or something? I I don't know. It's like a chemical formula for king. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) KG? What is KG? King guy. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's like, that's Krypton. Yeah, KT. Uh, King thing. Uh, it goes on and on. I mean, I have no idea what any of these things are. That's kind of funny, though, that they have. His bi- does, does like the future king have a business card that he has to have all the stuff on? <laughs> Let's exchange business cards. Here's mine. It's a foldout. It's got, <laughs> it's got a lot of stuff on it. Here's my pamphlet. Daenerys, mother of dragons, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> those, oh, those were the old days when the princes, yeah, slayer of dragon. You don't have to do that now. <laughs> Uh, listen, I, I would, I just would love, and I mean, the order of Canada is now a very traditional thing. It, it's, it's a great thing. I'm not dumping on the order of Canada. I keep saying that. I just wish we could distinguish somehow to know what it actually means and who some of these people are. And maybe the concern is that if you were to distinguish it and make it an academic one that nobody would pay attention, they'd only pay attention to the artists or whatever, but they're doing that anyway. When you show on the news, who's getting this, who are the two people that are the two that were mentioned right off the bat. Tragically Hip and Alex Trebek. No one said, oh, the scientist guy who's working on cl- working on a cure for toe fungus. I don't know if that was a guy, by the way. I'm just making that up. But nobody's pointing that guy out. They're only pointing it out anyway. So let's, let's do this in a way that people can understand what's happening. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The United States government uh, has said they've sent out a warning that uh, if you are going to travel to foreign countries over the next number of weeks, because don't forget they've got their Thanksgiving and then Christmas, they've got their holiday season coming up. You should be very careful because uh, they say there is credible evidence that bad things could happen around the world. Would you guys... 
with the climate of the world today, would you be comfortable traveling, or do you just want to stay right here in Canada? Despite any climate of the world whatsoever, even if nothing's happening, I would rather just stay here. Really? <laughs> I'm not a fan of traveling. Usually I end up with um, a lot of children on the plane that never sleep. Well, there's that. Oh, I'm glad you added on the plane. Yeah. I didn't know otherwise what you were doing on your vacation. <laughs> I just end up with a lot of children. Uh, oh. Not yet. No. What? Oh, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> None that you know of. What do you think, Ben? I, I'd be okay traveling. It just depends on where. I think that's always been the biggest thing is where you travel will make all the difference. If I go to London, England versus Spain, I'm going to get two very big different Except both have recently had tour, uh, terrorist attacks. Fair point. Nevertheless... See, because normally you would say, yeah. okay, you know what? I'm not going to go do my vacation at a lovely beach in Baghdad, right? I mean, people would say, okay, that would be crazy. It's, you know, it's dangerous. But it's dangerous. Look at what we've had on the news lately. It's dangerous everywhere if somebody decides to make it dangerous. And that's the thing, though, is you never know where. You never know. So home is, in, in, in this case, it's just as dangerous then going somewhere else. Maybe. Depending on where you go, of course. Maybe. And I just, I find it hard to believe. Maybe I'm very naive. I, I, I hope I'm not, but maybe I'm very naive, but I I just don't see Hamilton being a target for terrorists. I, And again, I, I hope that I'm, I hope that's fair and I hope that's accurate. And I hope I'm not overlooking something, but I just, if I'm someone who is going to either do a suicide mission or do something that I know could end up with me being killed by the police or locked up for the rest of my life. I don't know that Hamilton is the place that I'm going to say, that's where I want to make my mark. And I, so I feel very safe when I'm at home here. I'm just going to knock, uh, knock on this. No, for here. sure. No, for <laughs> sure. But, but so to your point, uh, I feel very safe being here in Hamilton. I mean, I really do. I feel very safe in Toronto, quite frankly, if I go down there. Some people, I mean, I grew up in Toronto until I was about 19 years old. So, I mean, it's a city that I know enough to say, okay, I, I can get around and I'm not, some people wouldn't have that level of comfort. But I, I don't have those fears that some people do of traveling. Again, assuming you're not going to somewhere that is basically designed to get you killed. If I go somewhere and... An attack happens, I look at it like, you know what, if I'm in London, if I'm in Spain, if I'm in Paris, and that's the place, and that's the time, and that's the moment, it's my time to go. That, that's how I look at it. If I'm somewhere that is reasonably safe, and that's the time that something happens, I, what can I do about that? It's dangerous everywhere. Just stay in your basement. Just lock up everything. <laughs> Go into your bomb shelters. Like, every everywhere is dangerous. Put a bomb shelter in the backyard and don't come out. Get enough food for a year. <laughs> Some people are. Yeah. Some people are. You guys weren't even alive, probably. Well, you, maybe you were alive. But, I mean, I remember back just 17 years ago with Y2K. I was exactly thinking that. I remember there was, like, an episode of, like... Futurama, where his like his dad was obsessed with Y2K. He had his own shelter and everything. That was running through my mind this entire conversation. For people who remember, and it's pretty much everyone listening, Y2K, people were stocking up on food. People were stocking up on water. We're not, I, I'm not a, um, you know, bomb. I don't have a bomb shelter in my backyard. But with all the stuff we heard about Y2K, we went out and bought eight or nine jugs of water because... Why not? It costs you a couple bucks each and better safe than sorry. I'd say it would be better for you to invest in reusable or like ways in which you can get water constantly instead of saying, I have a jug of water. I am good to go. Instead, be like, I have a water filtration thing. When the rain comes, I store my water. I have water. You know, it keeps coming. So just don't put any chemicals in my pool so I can have it for drinking water if need be down the road. Hey, you never know. But yeah, it's something like that in which you're like, I have a reusable, a renewable source of food, of water. Invest in gardening stuff. So if you have to, you can guard it. Like you can grow your own food. Prepare for the worst. Uh, buy a farm. <laughs> <laughs> With a bunker. Yeah. Yeah. I would travel though. I, I would. I have no worries about it. And again, if if it turns out that a year from now, on this particular show, they're announcing my demise because I went traveling somewhere and I got caught in a terrorist attack. It was my time. 
Honestly, I mean, I, I'm not being funny. I'm saying uh, if I go to London or somewhere like that, I just, it, it's, I'm not walking into what I expect is a horrible, horrible thing. And if it does happen, you can't, people who ran in the Boston Marathon, am I not going to run in a marathon if I was a marathon runner because someone might try and blow it up again? No, if I happen, I'm not trying to belittle or, or make light of the people who were injured, but there were literally tens of hundreds of thousands of people along that Boston Marathon route and a handful were injured. It was terrible. It was tragic that it happened to them. But should all of those 100,000 or 200,000 say, you know what? I'm never going to leave my home again. That's the pro- that's the thing I say. It's, it, it, I'll do it. That's why I say that traveling, it's all about where you go. But even then, you don't know what's going to happen. So I don't want to say don't worry about it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Great story that I just found online that I want to ask you about. Guy in Pennsylvania who joked that he didn't want to venture into the afterlife hungry died this week and was buried with two of his favorite cheesesteaks by his side so that he could dine in the future. When the time comes that you are buried, what food will be in the casket with Ben? What food will be in the casket with Rosti? With me, I'm going to have as many Twinkies as I can. Because they live forever. Because they live forever. Yeah. it's a good answer. Chicken nuggets and burgers. Doesn't matter where. Uh, all right. The nuggets for McDonald's, burger, wherever. Wow. Okay with whatever. Will, what's going to be in your casket when you die? What's the what's the food? Cheesecake. <laughs> Just cheesecake. It's going to get no. sticky very quickly. <laughs> Don't care. Cheesecake in the afterlife. That's a way to go. I'm going to have about a 300-ounce steak, medium rare. Should last for a day or two. <laughs> <laughs> Is this like the, the thing where you put the, the coins on their eyes to help them across yeah, the river Yeah, except I want steaks yeah. on my eyes <laughs> over the river sticks. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.